And thanks, Michael, for reading those scriptures. You know, the scriptures here really hit a, a real nerve in Christianity and in, in our human experience and what we struggle with every day of our human existence. Last night, um, my wife and I came here with some of the decorations. We were really here really late. We're just late people. <laughs> setting things up and uh, as we were coming here I looked at the moon anybody see the moon last night it's one of those super moons and I guess it's the last full moon of the month of December I don't follow this stuff but I just read it somewhere because I'm not a moon person and it was actually not only the full moon of the last full month full moon of the year it was the largest called the super moon and it reminded me of this story Back in Bible college, when I was in Massachusetts, I had a friend in Bible college, and he worked at a um, a hospital. I don't know the politically correct word for this, but a hospital for the mentally handicapped, or I don't know how you'd say that properly, or like a place where people go if they've lost their minds. And so he worked there, he worked there all night, and his job was really to monitor the patients to make sure that they're okay, if they would get up at, you know, during the night, that they would be tended to. And this was really some, a very interesting place. There was a lot, of, a lot of wealthy families in New England had sent their kids there or some of their family that were struggling. And he told me the story about this one guy who would come in there, his, he was a judge, he was a judge who was a relatively well-known, high-profile judge in Massachusetts. And there would be certain times of the year that he would come in after work, his suit, his briefcase. He was a middle-aged man, very well-respected, walk in, check himself in for the night. And usually it was around the time of the full moon or when there was a lot of stress happening in his life. He would check himself in because he could sense that there was something that was about to go off. He'd walk in, put his briefcase down, greet the staff, just kind of get himself situated in his room and just be there. And he'd be there the whole night. And during the night, my friend, his name was Jack, he, he said that in the middle of the night, this man would just become another person. He'd just be like a raving lunatic, literally a lunatic, in every sense of that word, lunatic. And he'd just be this raving man, just like... Uh, just out of control and he was so astounded by this in the morning this judge would wake up and he would be he put himself together he was in his right mind he'd leave the hospital in his suit and coat and his briefcase and go to work that's quite a that's quite a situation isn't it no wonder the state of Massachusetts is is in the state that it is in because they've got judges like that but I heard that story and I've never forgotten that story because there is something about the human nature that is so uncontrollable and so scary. And I want to talk about this. The Apostle, Peter, uh, the Apostle Paul talks about this in Romans 7. We are, it's probably impossible for us to have not noticed in the news about the situation with TV personalities and senators that we're discovering these crazy things about them. These guys in the suits in Senate and Congress that are passing laws for our government, well-respected looking people, yet stuff is coming out about them because we live in an age of information. We live in an age of the internet where everything is immediately available uh, on the spot. 
And we're hearing things that, co- that are coming out about these people that when we look at them, we see a beast. We see something there that is just so awkward and so uncomfortable to see. And this is a state, folks, of the human race, isn't it? Romans chapter 7, verse 6. This verse here, if we don't understand this verse, we don't understand Christianity. But now we are released from the law, and I'm reading from the ESV, having died to that which held us captive, so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. This is the Advent season. Uh, This is a time where we are celebrating Christmas. And God just put it on my heart that we would talk about the gospel, the gospel of Jesus, that we would start two messages ago on the crucifixion, the darkness that Jesus experienced, his separation, so that we would never be separated and lost in darkness. And we're going to move backwards to his birth. Christmas is a really unique time, as we know. It's a time that's very painful for people. It's It's a reminder of what we don't have, the things that we don't have. And it's a reminder to people of, in some cases, broken relationships that are unresolved. Memories, pictures, Facebook shots. And I think that Christians, we as Christians, know only enough about the Christmas gospel to be miserable. We only know half of the story. We only live in half the story. That we are broken, but we're not educated in who we are in Christ, or who we are in the gospel. And what is the gospel? I just want to re- reiterate and uh, remind us of some of the points that we've hit during this series. The gospel is not just a way for people to get to heaven when they die. It's how God draws near to us, causing us to live victoriously in this life on earth, not just in heaven. Number two, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we could ever dare to believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more righteous, loved, and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared to hope because of the grace and the finished work of Jesus Christ. Amen? The gospel, number three, is the grace of God. When we say the gospel, here's the thing, that we have to continually define through the Holy Spirit and the Word of God terms in the Bible because what happens is, in Satan's mass plan to deceive people, he is carefully crafting new definitions to words. And the word gospel has turned into something like a guy standing on a street with a, with a loudspeaker preaching at sinners. And that is not only, that is, that is the wrong concept of the gospel, although gospel is preaching the grace of God to lost people. The, the gospel is the grace of God and the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's it. It's the grace of God and the finished work of Jesus Christ. And when Jesus said it's finished, that's what he really meant. Number four, the gospel is the, un, is the gospel for the unsaved is the Christmas story. I love Christmas because it's the awesome time to talk about the gospel, the miracle of Jesus Christ. Number five, the gospel for the saved is that we are complete in Christ, lacking nothing. Jesus is enough. He is shepherding us, and we want nothing. And so there's three things I want to talk about this morning. Number one, the condition, the condition that people face, the condition of the human nature. Number two, the battle. The battle we face as human beings. And number three, our identity in the Christmas gospel of grace. I want to say gospel. I just want the Christmas time for us to be permeated with the great news of the gospel, the grace of God. Because when it is, then we discover really we're living in that true meaning of Christmas. The condition. Years ago, and I don't know if you've heard of this man. His name is 
Robert Louis Stevenson in 1886 wrote a book. He wrote a book called The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. How many have read that book? Read the book. I don't mean just watch the film or just a, a play or something like that, but read the book. 80 pages. Wow, I'm impressed. That's great. That's great. That's great. I can't say that I've read the whole thing, but I, I, don't, I don't want to tell you how I read because I have ADD. But uh, in the book, he tells the story of a man by the name of Dr. Jekyll, and he was a professional living a decent life morally, yet he sensed there was something deeper in him that made, that made him sense a sense of naughtiness, which he identified with a name, Edward Hyde. And he was excited, and, and, and Dr. Jekyll, when he thought about this Edward Hyde, he was excited by the things that he wasn't allowed to do. This produced an inner tension, a secret frustration. And as time went on, he began to realize that as a human being, he was not one person, but he was really two persons. Okay, it's going to be a little psychological, but follow me here. That there's a radical duality in every human being. Got it? There's a radical duality in every human being. And this is what he was discovering. And this is the story he's telling. That, and, and because of this, he became very unhappy with his life because of the tension and the frustration. And he felt like he was living life and it was going nowhere. He was going into the direction of a dead end. And so his daily life became the two natures <clears throat> fighting with each other and contending for his attention and, and his consciousness. On one hand, here's Dr. Jekyll, the professional doctor, the man who was a good man. He was a man that wanted to help people. He was a person that was well-respected in society. And he wanted to deny selfishness and yet on the other hand there was another man that was Edward Hyde that was grasping at selfishness wanting to live for himself and it was such a frustrating situation that both of them in their battle for attention were not allowing the other to enjoy life Dr. Hyde could not enjoy his life because of Edward Hyde. Mr. Uh, Dr. Jekyll could not enjoy life because of Mr. Hyde. And Mr. Hyde could not enjoy his life of selfishness because of Dr. Jekyll. And this was the situation. So finally he gets this idea. If each could be housed in separate identities, okay, then there would be no more battle between the two. And if each could have its own life and separate it, then there'd be no more frustration and no more struggle with the selfishness that... Mr. Mr. Hyde would not be interrupted in his selfish life and Dr. Jekyll would not be interrupted by an ugly, awkward, creepy man called Edward Hyde in his profession. So what does he do? He develops a potion to separate the two identities. You like that? Don't you love the human mind the way it just tries to grapple with conflict? He develops this potion and to separate the two identities. We don't know how it happens, but he does it. And in the book, he puts it this way. The moment that Dr. Jekyll takes the potion that he's created to resolve the issue, he writes this statement in the booklet. I knew myself, the moment he takes the, the potion, I knew myself at the first breath of this new life to be more wicked, tenfold more wicked, sold a slave to my original evil, and the thought in that moment braced and delighted me like wine. Wow, do you get it? Unbelievable. And of course, what happens at the, end of the, at the end of the book, he finds himself that he can't control this Edward Hyde. 
It's, it's Edward Hyde gets out of control, takes over Dr. Jekyll, and begins to ruin his life as a professional. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like something that we could apply to today? Interesting story. I like to research. I like history. I like to dig beneath the surface and find out why and who and what and, and get that historical context. Robert Louis Stevenson was a Scotsman. My family is Scottish, not related to him. Raised in a night, listen to this. This is his background. He was raised in a 19th century in a legalistic, Calvinistic, Presbyterian church. Wow. In a church home like that. He was, he was raised in the, in, the, in the suffering and the, and the smothering effect of, legal, of legalism. And so I believe, this is my theory, that this book was born out of an inner struggle that was going on with Mr. Stevenson. What's he describing here? He's describing Romans chapter 7, isn't he? He's describing that he only knew enough about the gospel to be miserable and confused about his identity. And guess what, folks? Romans 7, Dr. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, if I can get those names right, points to our present conflict that we face every day. Dr. Jekyll, the religious self, and Edward Hyde, the craven, selfish self. Dr. Hyde, uh, Edward Hyde represents the identity that, that we have in the world, that we blame on other people, that we say, other people have made me this way. I was impacted as a child in this way, and I've become this way. But the truth is, whether we were impacted or not, whether life happened to us or not, we have a DNA of an old sin nature that makes us, that creates us with a fallen self. And so the battle here is what we face. We face battle when we look at these two men. And a lot of people think that this is the Christian view of human nature. People look at Christians and say, okay, you have such a divided, dichotomous way of looking at human nature. Hollywood portrays this. We've seen movies probably in the past where you have the priest, the holy man, secretly struggling with the temptation of women. This is the way the Hollywood, this is the way the world portrays the Christian life. A lot of Christians think that this is what Christianity is. And who has time to think about missions? And who has time to think about the needs of their neighbor? And who has time to think about the... um, the things that God wants to bring you into in your calling when this battle is raging within. And this is really the enemy of our soul's strategy to get you and I embroiled in a battle that is not for us to fight. Verses 7, I just want to look at these. I don't want to read them, but I just want you to note later on you can look at this. Romans uh, 7, verses 7 to 13, you'll notice they are in the past tense. And this means that this is Paul pointing to his life before the gospel, before Christ. We have a great picture in Paul's life before as a believer that he is battling something that he could never, ever win. You know, an unsaved person is sold a slave to sin, like we read here about Mr. Stevenson's or Dr. Jekyll's experience when he took that potion. He realized that he was sold to sin as an unsaved man. He was... He was lost to any way to change his life or to improve himself. Verses 14 to verses 25 are in the present tense. Paul's present experience as a Christian, as a believer, as a church leader. Oh my gosh. As a church leader. As a five-star general in the kingdom of God. Is struggling in Romans chapter 7. Don't you love the honesty? 
of a man of God who is established in the grace of God. This is so awesome. He's not insecure. And he says, I'm struggling in verses 14 to verse 25. I love Romans 7. I think it's one of the greatest chapters of the Bible. Romans 8 is even better. Paul talks about a new battle that comes with the Christian life. You know, when we get saved, we think all the battles are going to be over, right? My dad, when he got saved, he's a very smart guy. He went to MIT, Northeast or Northwestern, worked at General Hospital. That's where he met my, my mom, got married. Very smart people. And he said, I didn't want to get saved because it was just, it was just too simple. The gospel was too simple. And when he got saved, another, another battle began in his life. And he began to describe this battle. He said, there's a new battle in my Christian life. I thought that when I got saved, the battles would be over. I thought that life would be a smooth sailing. That every day I would have all the answers that I could just quote Bible verses. But this is a different kind of battle. The battle before we get saved is a battle that we cannot win. That we cannot even try to win. But the new battle in the Christian life here in Romans 4, uh, 7, 14 to 25 is a battle that we cannot lose. We cannot lose that battle. Amen? And I want, to get that, I want to get into that in a second. What great news. Let's have good in church. Let's preach a good message. Not just a positive thinking message, but truth that sets people free. This is the kind of church that I'd like to see God do here. Is where we preach and people walk in that door with burdens and they leave. And all the burdens are in the back there with the ladders and, and all the construction <laughs> stuff. Thanks for your patience with our building here. It's a different battle, and it's a battle that we cannot lose. Is that so awesome? What, could you, what would you do in your life with God if you knew that you could not fail? Wow, what a better dream that is than to dream, what could I do if I was never hindered as Mr. Hyde? You know, when I think about Edward Hyde, I wonder, where did he get that name, Edward Hyde? I don't know, this is just me, me speculating, but did, did, did Stevenson know an Edward Hyde that possibly lived like just a pagan, that had a real person that he looked at and admired and said, I wish I could be like him. I wish he could just, I could live just crazy, fulfilling all of my desires without any hindrances. And I think that there are people that you and I know that we could say, oh, wow, and maybe secretly we think, I wish I could live like that guy and never, ever feel guilty. But here, Paul's talking about a different battle. And this is a battle that you and I face, but it's a battle that we cannot lose Verse 13 talks about a battle, this battle that rages. And why does this battle rage? Because the commandment, and get this, okay, this is important this morning. The battle rages because the commandment didn't just reveal the selfish, evil Mr. Hyde, but in some ways it empowered him and aggregated him, right? Augustine talks about as a kid, he would jump the fence of a neighbor and he would go steal the apples or the fruit just because it wasn't allowed. Augustine discovered that he had an old sin nature. How many of you have had kids, little kids, but when you tell them, don't do that, and what are they doing? They're in the next room doing it. Why? Because the old sin nature, when the commandment comes, it doesn't just reveal the selfishness in us, and that's the purpose of the law, to reveal, to define something that we don't want to define, that the law and the Ten Commandments are holy, and they're holy because they reveal something about us, and it reveals something about us all the time, who we are in the flesh, that we are worse than we could have ever imagined. Yet, that points us to the, and I'm getting ahead of myself, to the book of Galatians, where there is a, there is a Savior that is waiting to receive us and love us, the commandments here causes Mr. Hyde to get aggravated. He gets aggravated. He gets agitated. He gets frustrated. 
And he's like, I just want to do this. That sin might, and it says in verse 13, but sin that it might be appearing as sin, working death in me by that which is good. Think of that. That sin by the commandment might be exceedingly sinful. Well, that's, if we just closed right there and prayed, we'd, just leave, we'd all be so depressed walking out of here. What's the core problem that Paul's talking about in verse 21? Paul's talking about in verse 21, a law. And he says, a law. When, you, when, you read that book, when we read that word law in the New Testament, think of the, like the law of gravity or principles that don't change. That however high you jump, you're always going to come down. That's a law. Okay? We're not talking about Murphy's Law here or the law of negativity, but we're talking about laws, things in nature that just do not change. Paul is saying here there's an unchangeable law that when I would do good, <laughs> when I would endeavor to do good, what happens? In the King James, I think it says, evil is present with me. Oh my gosh. You know? How many can attest to that? New Year's is coming up. New Year's Day is coming. And I think most Americans are going to be making New Year's resolutions. I'm going to quit smoking. I'm going to lose 25 pounds. I'm going to stop doing this in my life. I'm going to stop doing that. I'm going to stop yelling at my dog. You know? And the, when, I would, when I would endeavor to do good, what happens? Guess what happens? That evil draws near. And this Greek word there for evil is kakos, which just, just means like badness, just brokenness, just, just intrinsic by nature, just draws near to me. And so there's a law here that the measure, the, the more we try to do good, then that evil is present and it draws near. And I can, we can sense it, right? We can sense that evil. The Ten Commandments really address a lot of things that can be managed except for the Tenth Commandment. You ever read the Ten Commandments? And I don't know why. Please forgive me if, 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 if you don't agree with me, but I don't think that the first thing that we should be teaching kids is the Ten Commandments. <laughs> I think we need to be teaching them Jesus Christ and the new covenant. I mean, I'm not against the Ten Commandments. I'm not an amoralist. I'm not antinomianism. Okay, but I'm talking about this. Ten Commandments really address a lot of things that can be managed. Right? Okay, I didn't steal anybody's car. I didn't take anybody's wife. I'm not doing this. I'm not doing that. But, but the, last ten, the last commandment, the Tenth Commandment is do not covet. And that's an Old Testament word. That's a King James word that just translates into this. Do not lust. What is lust? Lust is that big word, that heavy-duty word that's out there in the world. Lust is, lust is a very big word. It just means to desire anything that is outside of God's will and God's timing for your life. That's what lust is. It just means to desire something that is not God's will for you at that moment or at God's timing in your life. And when we want things that are not God's timing in our life and we want things that are outside of his will for us, then we enter into covetousness, which is... I, I like to take big words and just kind of melt them down to something that we can enjoy in bite-sized portions. We can't manage covetousness. And Matthew chapter 5 talks about that. Jesus is amazing. He, and I love this. I could talk about this all day. And I hope we're not going to be here all day. I don't think we will. But Jesus comes into the picture. Not only does he fulfill the law, but he takes the law and he drills it down into something he makes it so impossible. The law is already so impossible. Then he goes, Matthew chapter 5, if you think an evil thought, you've already done it. Wow, Jesus is like bringing down the, the he's bringing down the, the law down into a thought life, into the condition of the heart. And this is so impossible. And I think if I was a follower of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, I would have just been like, okay, I'm done. It's over. I'm done. I can't, I can't do this. 
And so lust is something. What's another better word? Or just want. Wanting good things or bad things outside of God's timing or plan. I just want to say this. You may think I'm a heretic or you, you may not agree, but it's possible. And I think many, do, many people do desire morality. A better self, like they desire a new car or a new house, a new husband or a new wife. Anything for a change for the better. There's a part of us, that fallen self, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde are both fallen. He's the moral man, he's fallen, and Dr. Hyde, I'm sorry, uh, Mr. Hyde is also fallen. Both of them are fallen. There's a moral part of you and I, me too, I'm pointing myself. Because before I get up here on Sunday morning, I preach this message to myself all week, because I have to be accountable to it. There's a moral part of me that is so disgusted with Mr. Hyde in my life that it just makes me disgusted with myself and I want to improve my life and I desire morality, right? Right? <clears throat> unsafe people. It's amazing what an unsafe person can do, a person that doesn't even know the grace of God. They can just quit all of these habits. They can become a better person. They can super exceed, succeed in their life. But it's just the power of the energy of the flesh. It's possible to desire morality but not desire Christ and not desire the spirit of life, not to desire God, not to desire his plan for our life. They get so wrapped up in the battle. And this is not God's will. And I say this a lot. It's not God's will for you and I to be in this mental World War III battle in our heads about our spirituality. Okay, I'm going to get to that in a second. Verse 22 talks about it. He says in verse 22, in my inner being, in my inner being, the real me delights after the law of God. Now, sometimes people take this verse and they see, this is the way the Christian life should be. Desire the law of God. And I, I used to read that and I think, oh, wow, okay, God, I don't even desire the law of God. I, people have either one of two bents in their life. Everyone in this room either has one bent, to, one to the left or to the right. And that bent is either conservative, religious, hyper-spirituality, Phariseeism, or the other bent is going to be just all-out lasciviousness. I don't care. I don't give a heck. What's going on? I'm just going to live my life, and if you don't like it, then just go somewhere else. Lasciviousness. Those are one of two bents. I'll just say that every one of us in this room, we we go back and forth between the two. And I think here, Paul is saying that, you know what? In my religious self, in my fallen religious self, in my inner being, I desire the law. But the truth is that Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde they do not delight, delight in the law of God truly because neither of them can maintain it and Mr. Hyde runs from it. The message today in religion is be like Jesus, <clears throat> isn't it? Just be like Jesus. What would Jesus do? And there's religious sincerity in there. There's moral sincerity in that, isn't there? I know it's getting a little warm in here, but figuring out our air conditioning, how it goes. But there is this religiousness, this sincere, and when you meet a sincerely religious person, I lived in Poland. We were a mission, I was a missionary there. And I've never met so many religiously mor- moral, religiously sincere people in my life. They were more godly than I was if we were going to judge it by, the, by being like Jesus. This is not the message of the gospel. Be more like Jesus. Can I tell you something? And this might be surprising. Guess what? Lucifer wanted to be like God, but without a cross, without the gospel. So when we say, oh, I want to be like Jesus, and, okay, I am, not, I am not exempt from this. Michael and I had a little exchange last night by, via text message. I was at 
the Anthony's house last night, we were, or yesterday afternoon after outrage, we were talking about this. There are times in my life where I just crave spirituality and godliness and holiness in my life. I crave it. I just like, oh, God, I just desire, you know, holiness in my life, sanctification. And, you know, there, that is good, and we can talk about that at another time. But you know something? What's the message of the gospel? It's not be like Jesus, because none of us can be like Jesus. I can't be like Jesus. What's the, what's the message? It's not, it's because that message is not attainable. The more moral education that we put into people to be more like Jesus, the more it aggravates and makes the battlefield worse. All it does is make you more conscious of what you're not able to do. My theory here, this is one of the reasons why Robert Stevenson wrote this book. He was all pent up with this incredible battle inside of himself. He said, I've got to get this out. So he pens this story. The story ends in a very sad way if you've read it. And that's not really good. But you know what? You would, when, when, when you read that book, you just, want to, you just want to go back to Robert Stevens and say, guess what? Here's the gospel. Here's the gospel of grace, the gospel of the finished work, your new identity. And when the gospel comes into you, the first thing the gospel tells you is you're dead. You can never satisfy God, and your religion is really covetousness. Isn't that amazing? I'm sorry. Maybe I'm some blowing some structures here today. But my religious energy and my fallen religious self can actually be a form of covetousness to be something that I could never attain to because I don't have the power to be that way. And this is what Paul is saying. Are you getting it? Let me say it another way. I can be so angry at myself and my continual failures and things that I'm struggling with in the present tense as a Christian. I can be so upset at myself that I have this religious desire to change myself so that I can love myself better. If I could only look this way, like my neighbor or this other person in the church, if I could only talk this way, if I could only be this way or be like my neighbors, then I would feel better about myself. Even if I was a different ethnic race, if I was a different category socially, if I was just politically different, I would be more acceptable. And guess what? This, this, the root of that is the 10th commandment, and that is covetousness, lust, desiring something that is just not something that you can do in your own power. And so this is where the gospel comes in. The law comes, the law comes. And by, by the way, when we reject the gospel of grace, guess what happens? We become performance-oriented. We become performance-oriented. And isn't that, isn't that America that we live in? This is amazing. This is like the United States. We are so... When my relatives came here in the, in the late 1800s, uh, they were from Denmark... Copenhagen, Denmark, they came here, they sold all that they had, they moved to northern New York, and they began a, a life of achievement so that their kids could have a better life. Performance. They were Lutherans. They did not know the gospel of grace. Yet, when we are living in performance, we're, we're always kind of mad at God or kind of afraid of God. When you live in performance and you're living outside of the gospel of grace, when we're not thinking in the grace of God, guess what happens? We get always, we're always kind of angry at God, aren't we? Like, we're a little bit, like, perturbed at God. Like, why, why is God not answering this prayer? Why is God not doing this in my life? Or we're afraid of God. We live in fear. Actually, we treat him like our boss. Okay, how many of you have a boss at work that just continually turns you off? I, 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 ha, I, I think every one of us here can. If, you're, if your boss is in the room, don't raise your hand. But uh, we have bosses and this is what happens is that our, our concept of God, when we're outside of the grace of God and we're not thinking in faith, guess what happens with our concept of God? He becomes our boss. Because, you know, you can never really get close to your boss. 
You can only get so close because at any moment, for any unknown reason, he could call you into his office and say, guess what? You're out of here. I'm sorry. You're fired. Or he may be doing something dishonest. Or he may be doing something that is just not in your best interest. That is not the proper picture of who God is. Let's talk about our identity here. Now that we're a Christian, there's, one of the th- there's, there's, there's things that sometimes go wrong. And sometimes as a Christian, we fall back into something that was part of our life as an unsaved person. This happens. This happens. And the temptation is to say, guess what? Nothing's changed in my life. Nothing's changed. Maybe you've been saved for about 20, 25 years. I don't know. You've never had this issue with this thing in your life that you had before, but now it's coming back on the it's coming back on the horizon where you're being tempted to do something that you haven't done for 25 years or however long, maybe three years, and you're going to say nothing has changed. But that's not true, and this is why it's not true, because now as a Christian, it's a different battle. Before it was a battle you could not win, but now it's a battle that you cannot lose. You're in a battle that you cannot lose. Why? And here's the proof. Okay. In the old days, that habit was expressive of your real self, just follow me here, and no longer is it. Proof? Here's the proof. You're not going to get the same kind of enjoyment and pleasure from that sin that you did before. That's the proof. There's a new nature inside of you. There's a Holy Spirit inside of you. The Spirit of grace, the Spirit of life is inside of you. I remember after I had shortly gotten saved, I was in high school, and there were some friends that were doing some things, and I was like, yeah, you know what, I want to... Hey, count me in. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna jump in this with you. And they're like, okay, you know. So I'm with them. We're doing something just really bad, and um, we're doing this thing. And I, I'm just feeling so like, oh man, I'm just feeling so convicted. The conviction is, and I'm running from the conviction, but I'm being convicted. And one of my friends said to me, he said, "What's wrong?" I said, oh, "Nothing. Hey, we're having a great time." No, there's something wrong. Like, and I was like, "Well, no, not really." No, something's wrong, and you're kind of making us all feel uncomfortable. And I was like, and they said, hey, and so it kind of just parted ways. I was like, thanks, Holy Spirit. Thanks, present. Thank you for the, thank you, Spirit, not of this world, indwelling in me, the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's amazing, isn't it? That though I would want to sin, there's a new law in my life that I don't have to try not to sin. There's something in my life, it's called the Spirit of life. And now when those, when those times happen, when we fall into something in the old way, just remember, the Holy Spirit's going to convict us that's not who we are anymore. Because we're not going to get the same enjoyment as pleasure. It doesn't taste the same because it's no longer who we are. And so Paul in verses 24 and 25 begins to wrap up his just his stream of consciousness in his struggle. And he says, oh, wretched man that I am. I love that. Oh, wretched man. That's a prayer. That's a confession, isn't it? Oh, wretched man that I am. Who shall deliver me from this body of death? This is where... Paul lands. This is where he parks. This is where he, this is the conclusion that he comes to. And this is the conclusion that you and I should come to when we find ourselves in the middle of a battle that we cannot win. He says, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? What does he do? He just throws himself at the cross. And he just, he throws himself at the feet of the law. And he says, oh, wretched man that I am. Sometimes when the devil accuses me of things, I just say, you know what? Yeah, you're right. I am a sinner. And here's all the ways, that, and, and these, these are the Ten Commandments and all the other commandments that were added later on to prove to, to prove to me and everybody that I'm a sinner. But guess what? <coughs> Paul says this. He says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He begins to go into thankful mode. We know in Romans chapter 7, I don't know how many times, but every verse is littered with the, with the word I. I, I, I. 
egocentric Christianity, self-centered Christianity is all about my battle, my drama. I think that drama, human drama, like fleshly drama, is always, the, is always a signature of the presence of the flesh. Yeah. It's the presence of the fallen nature, and it's not the presence of God. He says, I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, so then with my mind I myself serve the law. And he said, I've resolved it to this. This is where I'm at. God, I want you. And I, 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 focus in here with me. I, God, we say, God, I want you. What I want you, there's a part of me that really wants me. Consciously, in my conscious mind, I want you. I want your law. I want your life. I want, I want to serve you. I want to not be that way. Yet in my flesh, in my flesh, I serve the law of sin. And again, sometimes people say, well, that's Christianity right there. And I, I, I want to propose to you that that's not Christianity. That's not God's will for you and I to live this way. Paul just says, this is the best I can do. God, it, Paul just presents himself. He throws himself at the cross of Jesus Christ. He throws himself at the feet of the law. And he says, oh, wretched man that I am. And this is what I want you and I to do this week. When you have things come into the picture of your mind, when you, can, when you have things come to your mind, or you have thoughts come to your mind, throw yourself at the cross and throw yourself at the foot of the law and just say, oh, wretched man that I am. Yes, I am a wretched man. Yes, I, God, I admit it. I, I confess to you. And by the way, the Bible never tells us to pray for forgiveness, but it tells us to confess our sins, okay? Because why? Because we're forgiven, okay? And it might blow our... Con- I remember as a teenager constantly battling with things and then praying that God would forgive me. God, forgive me. God, forgive me. Then I read 1 John 1, 9 and 1 John 1, 7. It doesn't say, ask God to forgive you, because God has forgiven us, right? He says, just confess your sins. And there's a religious part of us that want to beat ourselves up and just... Because that's just the flesh that, okay, I am, I am lawgiver and I am law executor. Meaning that I'm going to obey the law, and if I don't obey the law, then I'm going to beat myself up. And that is just human worship. That's when we worship our ego. Does that make sense? This is where Paul lands in his stream of thought. And I want to ask you this morning, is this where God wants us to stop? And I want to say no. Let's go to Romans chapter 8, verse 1, the next verse in your Bible. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Hallelujah. Isn't that great? That should be our shout every morning. There's therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And some of the translators and other manuscripts that later on add this other part, a conditional part, who are walking not after the flesh but in the spirit. That's not in, in some of the, that part is not in some of the original manuscripts. Praise the Lord. Because there is no, con, there's no, there, there is, and when I understood this growing up, when I was growing up in a church that preached the grace of God, and I understood this, I was so set free. There's therefore now condemnation. Another big religious word, which in the Greek is a katakrima, which basically means to look down upon and judge. To look down upon and judge. When we fail, God is not looking down upon us and judging us. There's no condemnation, Jesus Christ. There is no condemnation. And we have, to say that, we have to say that so many times. This is the gospel. Romans chapter 8, and I'm going to wrap it up here. Romans chapter 8 is the gospel for you and I, for the Christian, for the saved Christian. This is where you and I... And if there's one chapter that you want to memorize in the Bible, memorize this chap- chapter. Remember, just memorize this chapter, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Memorize it if you want to memorize any kind of scripture. This is the gospel for the Christian right here. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
Verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. What about my struggle? What about my situation? What about my drama? What about Edward Hyde in my life, that identity that I've created when I lived in the world and I was this popular guy and everybody loved me because I was the party guy or I was the intellectual guy or whatever I was, the Edward Hyde. What about him? What do I do with him? Well, guess what? The battle was done 2,000 years ago, amen? Edward Hyde was already crucified. He was killed. He was buried. And he didn't rise from the dead when Jesus rose from the dead. Every bad part of us, and I can't, I can't, I don't know how to say this any better than this, is that every part of us that we try to counsel, that we try to manage, every part of us that is in our sinful nature, that when we try to manage it, has already been killed. It's dead. It's judged. Amen? We can say amen. We can talk a little bit. It's amen. It's praise the Lord. I mean, I just want to jump off this stage right now and say, no condemnation in my life. Guess what? As a pastor... And maybe you're a leader here, or maybe you're someone that's in this, and you just like say, you know, I should know better. I should know better. And then there are people out there that'll preach a message like, hey, you should know better. And you've got to work on yourself, and you've got to improve yourself. This is a message that the flesh loves. But the Bible says here, the law of the spirit of life. You know what the law of spirit of life is? It means that when I just forget about the battle that was already won 2,000 years ago, and just say, oh, wretched man that I am, yes, I'm lost. Okay, okay, now that's dealt with. I don't know what to do. Are there situ- have you ever been in a situation that you don't know what to do with and you just thought, leave it in the hands of God? Well, this is what we need to do. Is take, make the shift from battling sin in my life that's already been taken care of 2,000 years ago and just begin to focus on Jesus Christ and what he's done in our life and what he wants to do in, the, in your life, in your family. You know, Jesus, God wants to do some amazing things in your family. And it could take some years. It could take 30 years. I don't know. Like Moses, 80 years. God wants to do things in your life, and he's going to bring it to pass. Don't get wrapped up in the wrong battle. For what, and in verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life. What is the law of the spirit of life? And I'm going to finish with this. This is verse 3. What is the law of the spirit of life that makes us free? Maybe you've heard this illustration, but how many of you have, been, have flown an airplane? How many of you have flown an airplane? For me, every time, it's just the most amazing thing. I don't, I'll never get used to it. I've flown... Many times overseas on mission trips, and I never get used to this moment where the plane is speeding down the runway, the nose goes up, and then the ground begins to, you begin to see the ground drop. That, for me, is one of the most amazing experiences. Some of us don't like planes because it takes, away, takes us away from our home and our family. This is what the, what the law of the spirit of life is. It gives us victory over this, the law of, this, of sin and flesh. Is this, is that when you and I become Christ-oriented, when we begin to bathe in the grace of God, when we begin to bathe in the promises, when we begin to bathe in who we are in Christ, guess what happens? We begin to lift off, and we discover, you know what, I'm no longer desiring those things anymore. When I'm in the body, when I'm in, your, when I'm in this church, when I'm with you folks, when you're in this body, we're not thinking about stuff. We're not thinking about spiritual uh, McDonald's meat. We're thinking about high eternal things thinking with God because the law because verse verse 3 where God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do the law was given to teach us to prove to us you can't do it ten commandments were not given to us to obey the ten commandments were given to us to prove to us that we are a sinner oh wretched man that I am and when we come to that conclusion and we say oh wretched man that I am I cast myself Lord at the foot of your cross be merciful unto me, a sinner. One of the most amazing prayers in the Bible. 
I pray it. To, I pray it every day. God, don't give me what I deserve. Be merciful unto me, a, a sinner. And when we pray that that way, guess what happens? We begin to see the gravitational pull of sin lessen in our life and lessen in our life. And then we can begin to take on an understanding of God's eternal purpose. I just want to say this is the message that God wants us to preach these days in this world, in this country, in this state of Texas, this great state of Texas. I love Texas. We moved here a year and a half ago from Boston, I mean from Baltimore. And I'm originally from Boston, but I love being here. I think God is moving in some great ways. I feel like God's moving in our midst. And sometimes it's kind of interesting, awkward when things happen. But God is moving and he's taking us upward towards him. Galatians 5 verse 16, I say, walk in the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For you are not under the law. Because the law has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.